This is Zane Raj, author of Marketing for Tomorrow, Not Yesterday, Surviving and Thriving in the Inside Economy. And you're listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer in 2016. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're joined by Zane Raj, and we're going to talk about his book, Marketing for Tomorrow, Not Yesterday, Surviving and Thriving in the Insight Economy. Zane is the president and CEO of Shapiro Raj, an insights and inspiration company in Chicago. Zane is also the founder and CEO of Zednext, an ideas incubator that takes an objective and disruptive look at trends to help marketers and business leaders with the increasingly data-driven digitally-led and insights-driven world. Most recently, he was CEO of Epsilon Agency Services, the largest global CRM and digital agency. He was previously CEO of Euro RSCG Discovery. He has also held senior leadership roles at FCB Worldwide, formerly known as Footcone Building, and J. Walter Thompson and Gray. Zane has contributed his insights to the Wall Street Journal, Business Week, Fast Company, Forbes, Cranes, and publications from the nation's top business schools, and now the Marketing Book Podcast. Zane, congratulations on Marketing for Tomorrow, Not Yesterday, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. I'm very, very happy to be on with you. So I, in reading your book, I realized we are both alumni of J. Walter Thompson and Gray at about the same times. Yeah, you know what? It's so funny when you find the small world syndrome, right? Uh, you know, happens occasionally, but it's great to have an ex-colleague kind of doing something cool and different in today's world, right? And Yeah, and I don't think we ever met there, which is uh, fortunate for you because, um, you know, I would have slowed you down. But it was, uh, those, were, those were good times. And uh, as we'll talk about today, a very different time. We're talking about late 80s, early 90s at that point. Now, I learned about you and your book from Russ Klein, the CEO of the American Marketing Association. He was here in my corner of Virginia giving a talk at the local American Marketing Association chapter. And uh, I would say to the listener, if you're a member of a local AMA chapter and you find out that the CEO of the AMA, Russ Klein, is coming, go see him. It was absolutely fantastic. It was a great talk. And I, I went up and met him afterwards and told him about the podcast, and uh, he said, you have got to talk to Zane. So from reading your book, Zane, amongst many things I learned, I also learned that you play guitar and you fly United sometimes. Do you ever fly United with your guitar? Because, you know, United breaks <laughs> guitars. Uh, you know what? I was. It's so funny. Dave Carroll, whose guitar got broken, and then, you know, he turned that into... The, the music video that, you know, became a viral sensation. And dropped you know, their stock price by like 10%, I think. And, and I completely made them revamp the customer service organization. And actually, you know, it was, it was what I would call a silver lining on a dark cloud for United by, by 
having Dave get pissed off at them, right? He, Dale ended up you know, becoming, for a short period of time, a terrific, terrific airline for their frequent flyers. Unfortunately, good things don't seem to last too long in that industry. Uh, so they're back to being who they are. But yes, no. Uh, yes, I still fly United. No, I never fly United with my guitars. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. So uh, let me start with an opening quote, and then we're going to get into the book. I've got page after page of questions, but we're only going to get to a few. So here we go. More than ever before, CMOs are being held accountable. Their remit is very clear. Their CEOs and boards are asking for distinctive and compelling ideas that will deliver strong results measurable business outcomes that they can take to the street. Finding big new ideas and new ways to differentiate brands has become today's biggest unsolved business problem. CMOs are on the line when ideas fail, and when that happens, they find themselves out on the streets as more and more boards and CEOs decide that traditional marketing capability is a replaceable skill. To avoid this fate, you... As a marketing leader today, you need to make yourself irreplaceable. You need to hone your focus, broaden your skill set, and learn how to formulate powerful ideas that can transform your brand and the business. So, Zane, I want to ask you to explain what the insight economy is. And if you could, take the listener through uh, the... Uh, the errors that happened before, you, you talk about the attention economy and the information economy. Absolutely, Douglas. Um, so, you know, fundamentally for most of us, and you and I talked about the small world syndrome, and just as an aside, you know, Russ and I were colleagues together at a small independent agency in Chicago called Bayer Best Vanderwerker, right? Oh, Where yeah, Russ I know that name. Right. And Russ or Russ came in to run the Gatorade business and he and I actually had offices right next to each other. And that's that's how long ago I knew Russ and Russ has gone on to doing great things. And, you know, and uh, here we are. But what that story also defines is, you know, you and I, Russ and I, we all went through two fundamental big marketing eras, as I call it. Right. The first one was the period between uh, 1960s to middle of 1980s. And, you know, it was best typified by the AMC show Mad Men, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, this was a time for big brands because new companies were coming in. You know, the, our economy in the country was growing dramatically. We were at the center of the universe and advertising uh, was the fundamental weapon that companies discovered to build big businesses and brand advertising became big, right? This was the years of Rosser Reeves and his unique selling proposition. This was the era of Bill Burnback and creative brand advertising. This became the time for David Ogilvy and, you know, creating a copy that persuaded, if you will. And, and I call it the attention economy because the entire marketing world was built around the premise of, we have to, one, drive awareness, right? And uh, get people to pay attention to whatever we are communicating to them and the products and services that we're marketing to them. What happened in the mid 80s is that world shifted and that world shifted and I use 1984 as, a epif uh, you know, as an epiphany moment 
uh, and it was the Super Bowl uh, in 1984 that changed the world. It wasn't the game. It never such. is. <laughs> it never is, right? But it was the one 60-second TV commercial that got created by collaboration between two gentlemen, a guy called Steve Jobs, who we all know. And if you've been in the, ad, uh, in the marketing world, you'd also recognize the other name, Lee Clow. Yes. They collaborated to create a commercial that basically said the, the, the freedom in the future, in the world of the future, is if you walked away from uh, computing as defined by Microsoft and walked into the world of computing as defined by Jobs and Wozniak. And fundamentally, when Apple came into, uh, into, into our world, it started the whole paradigm of democratizing the power of computing. And what that did fundamentally shifted the world where we became more and more comfortable with the data that became available. And we got even more comfortable manipulating the data. We now call it analytics and, you know, have some very nice, uh, you know, phrases and words for it. My favorite, you know, is a phrase that I've used and have built a bunch of good successful companies with is predictive analytics, right? It's about using the past data to predict what happens in the future. But that data and the dependence on data led us to the inside economy. So to me, if the attention economy was the world of madmen, right, Don Draper and his kin, to me, the information economy, which was 84 to 2014, became uh, the, the era of Jeff Bezos, right? Because Jeff was one of the only people who understood the power that data gave him, not just to run a smart business, which is what people were using. They were using data for supply chain and operations, but for absolutely understanding people and more importantly, understanding how to take that data and create products, create services to change people's behaviors. And that is what resulted in Amazon. So those were the two eras. Now, the problem with the first is that became commoditized when the information era came in. But what the information era resulted in is it made us so dependent on data. What happened when uh, the dependence on the information era and the dependence on the data and the technology and the amount of change took us further and further and further away from the one fundamental thing that we all in the world of business and marketing understand is that at the end of the day, the only reason for a business to exist is so that there's a real person at the other end who's willing to buy or use what you have to sell and pay you good money in exchange. And as you said, uh, Peter Drucker said the, the purpose is to create a customer. The purpose of any business is to create a customer. And what is the customer as a, as a, as a a human being that actually decides to put money down on the table for a product or service you deliver. And, the, and, and we forgot that. And what happened was we had a bunch of great analysts. And so there are people we talk about, I'm an analyst, I'm an analytic person, I do predictive. It's all about using technology and using data to kind of try and predict something. But you know what, what we realized after about a decade of trusting those things is people are not predictive. People, you know, and this is why I talk about David Ogilvy and what he said in the late 60s, early 70s. He said, your customer is your wife. She's not a moron, right? Right. And so, by, 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 so please stop treating. And my wife is not predictive. 
Exactly. And I talk to people. I mean, I did, you know, when I talk about this, I talk to people and I go, please, if you get to meet my wife, you will realize she's a wonderful person, right? She's warm. She's compassionate. She's very loyal. And, and, but at the end of the day, she's also idiosyncratic some base. And she, the one thing you can never, ever define is that, hey, just because she shopped with you the last two times, and she bought a certain thing, she's going to shop with you again and buy the exact same kind of thing because she evolves and changes based on the way the world is changing. And and that's what I realized as I've been leading engagements with clients, I realized that people were no longer focused on the right issues. And that's why businesses were getting commoditized. You know, marketing was getting homogenized and there was a world we were living in which felt like we were all living in the sea of sameness because we tried to solve every problem by trying to figure out if there was a bit or a bite that could give me an answer. And what we finally, what I finally realized and what I started communicating and building programs on is let's go back to the basics. Guys, I tell my clients, let's just think about who is your customer. And what I, rea- you know, what I found was 17 companies. These are Fortune 500 companies. Out of 17 Fortune 500 companies, chief marketing officers, only one of them was able to clearly define for me and, and bring to life who her core customer was. Mm-hmm. The other 16 talked about the customers as, hey, You know, they were talking about them as deciles. They were talking about them in demographic frameworks. They were talking about them in terms of the transactional behaviors they had. But 16 of them could not literally bring to life for me who their customer was as a person, Mm -hmm. as a real human being. And the epiphany that that delivers is if you can't even understand who your customer is, how are you going to figure out what it takes to solve the problem? So the inside economy is a world where it's fundamental to understand, one, who, you, who the people are that actually drive your success, not the bits and bytes. And then understanding them at such a deep level that you can fundamentally be predictive and be thoughtful and, and most importantly, therefore, be successful in solving real issues and real problems they have so that the only brand that, that they see as a credible and a true and a real bonded alternative for them is your brand. Mm-hmm. Not complicated. This is what guys like us who, quote, have gray hairs, you know, well-earned by fighting the battles in the world of marketing, world of business, helping big, small brands succeed, is we learned. Because at the end of the day, it's my wife. If I can treat her well, right, and if I can get her to trust me, respect me, she will give me her loyalty if I am loyal to her. And that's mm-hmm. a simple principle that brands have forgotten. And that's a simple principle that the book, that I, the Inside Economy is all about to fix. Yes. And let's talk a bit more about the customers because there's a big point in your book. And also, I, after I read your book, I realized that that's where uh, Russ has clearly read your book because some of the things that he talked about were also in your book. And now when I find out that you guys had offices next to each other, you may be partially joined at the, at the head here. That is where you talk about beginning with your most valuable customers is the best marketing approach. And after Russ explained that and then I read it in your book, I realized, wow, you know, I, I still I see a lot of companies that are that are struggling with that. Why is it so important for businesses to focus on their most profitable customers? And what 
What's keeping them from doing that? What's the, the big distraction there? Great question, Douglas. So let me start with a small point of data that will bring it to life. So over the past three years, we've studied the top 50 consumer products companies in the world, right? So these are not just, you know, fast moving goods, right? These are consumer products and automobiles and stuff like that. Here's what our data has shown. Your top 19% of the customers of those 50 companies delivered 197% of the profit. The bottom 31% of the customers lost 97% of the profit. <laughs> and the middle 50% of the customers were fundamentally break even. Okay? So think about it. Your top 19%. Hey, you're not making these numbers up. It's, it's normally the kind of thing a CEO would pay attention to. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not making it up, right? Because we've all grown up on the Pareto principle, right? The Pareto principle said 80%, you know, 20% of your customers delivers 80% of your profits business, right? You know, Fred, Fred Reichfield, in his book called The Loyalty Effect, talked about that if you could just retain 5% of your customers, right, you'd fundamentally double the profit, right? Mm -hmm. So there has been a lot of work done around the area of why customers are important. You, you quoted, uh, you know, uh, Peter Drucker, right? You know, at the end of the day, a business's role is to basically create a customer, right? What, what happens in companies is if you focus on your customer, what you fundamentally do is, you know, you realize that they are the ones on, who are basically allowing you to do everything that you do, right? Your best customers, your top customers, your most profitable customers, your most valuable, whichever way you define them. These are the people who are giving you all of the resources that you need to turn the corner and basically invest in the future. Now, what happens is, uh, so the second part of your question was, why is it that companies find it very hard to focus on that reality? So I'll answer that question first before I come back to companies that have done successful job of building themselves consistently over time by focusing on their core customers. But the reason why most companies don't go down that pathway is, is two basically misunderstood marketing principles. Misunderstood marketing principle number one is they believe that if I want to get more growth, I have to get more growth by going to more people and bringing more people into the franchise. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why most of marketing has been built around innovations focused around who can I, who are the competitors, customers, and what can I give them now to become my customers, right? And so they do that. Um, you know, they also focus all of the marketing efforts against acquiring more customers versus kind of retaining the existing customers. And, and that's because the math is very clear, right? I mean, you know, when you have left brain people running companies and running marketing, what do they look at? Hey, you know what, I have 6% I have penetration in my category, which means I don't have 94% penetration in my category. So I've got a bigger pool of customers I should be able to go to and get, right? Mm -hmm, right. So that's one misunderstanding. The second misunderstanding is just because they have somebody who's their best customer, they think they've managed to get the maximum value that that customer can give within the category, okay? Mm -hmm. Both fallacies. So let's, let's talk about the first one first. The 94% of the other people that are not part of your brand franchise, frankly, are very comfortable being part of other brand franchises. So one of the one of the analysis we've done against those 50 companies, but also 
up against another 150 companies, over 200 Fortune 500 companies around the world, basically shows that there is a group of about 20% of customers are always going to be switching between brands in any category, right? They're mm -hmm. never going to be loyal because the categories have gotten so commoditized that people are going to come in and out. So, you you know, even if you think you've got a large group of people you can bring from competitive brands, they are not really available. It's like, it's a fallacy to think just because they're not part of your franchise, they're out there, therefore they're all available. They're not available, you know? That's why the whole ideas around the whole blue oceans and the white spaces are, 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 are flawed because just because there's a white space out there doesn't mean there's anything in the white space people can get, okay? And so understanding that issue, you know, when we point out to clients that, guys, when you think about that there's a huge big opportunity space, it's actually barren. It's like a, it's like a desert, right? There's nothing there. That becomes a big aha, okay? Mm -hmm. The second part is, when you look at their core customers, what you find is even in some of the best companies in the world, their, their best customers are only giving them less than 20% of their share of requirements. So if they're spending 100% in that category, $100, mm -hmm. even if you have the best customers of that category as part of your brand, they're giving you maximum $20 which means there's $80 that they're spending somewhere else. So let's talk about United, right? You brought it up in the early days. Okay, I am a global services customer in United, which as we all know now, is based on how much money do I really spend with them, which means I am one of the top spenders, right? With them, that's why they invite me. Mm -hmm. I also happen to be a concierge key customer for American Airlines, right? Which is also a top player again, by invitation for people that spend the most amount of money with them, right? right. And on top of that, I'm, I'm actually going to fly almost another 150,000 miles on airlines like Delta and, you know, and stuff like that, right? Which are a, a part of a separate group. For example, in the last 30 days, I flew almost 49,000 miles, right? Now think about it. If, if my spending is, is, is as follows, right? So I am a global service, which means I'm at the top end of the customer at United, but they still only get less than 20% of my spending, mm -hmm. okay? Now, United, what is United doing? If you look at United's marketing, their marketing is focused on what? Pricing, you know, a huge amount of focus on pricing, 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 which fundamentally is doing what? Trying to acquire people that are going to buy the cheapest fare to fly with United, mm -hmm. right? How much marketing effort have they focused on me so far this year? As far as I'm concerned, Zippo, okay? <laughs> I mean, I'm not kidding you. All the emails I get from them are, are exactly the same emails that my kids get, right? Because I've got them registered, right? Right. Because they fly with me. So they actually, you know, both of them are now, you know, premier, not, you know, mileage plus premier members, right? Just because I pay for the tickets, but they have their own. So I get the exact same emails with the exact same offers that they get. Mm -hmm. Think about it. There's no distinction. And that's the problem that why United continues to be in trouble. Now, if you look at companies like Nike, which is a fantastic company that fundamentally builds all of its innovation and all of its new products around how to make their existing core customers that use the existing products more successful, right? And make them more effective at just doing it. 
That's why they continue to keep on growing without having to go out there and play a price game. Okay, Allstate was able to do that seven years ago when they were competing against Progressive and Geico, and they were competing against both of those on a price basis, right? Mm -hmm. They were out there trying to compete and they weren't going anywhere because the problem is nobody believed Allstate could give them the same kind of pricing as uh, you know, Progressive or Geico could. But more importantly, that was never Allstate's problem. Allstate was trying to solve the real problem by trying to acquire new customers. What was the real problem? Churn. They were losing significant number of customers that had been with them for a while. And why? For one simple reason, because those customers paid them the premium for, for, for years consistently, but had one problem with them. And guess what happened? The premiums went up. I was one of their customers, right? And what happened? I paid them $5,000 a year on an average for 10 years. I paid them $50,000, right? My son, when he started driving, had a little problem with the car, right? You know, it wasn't even a big one. It was just a ding. As, he hit as the young side. drivers do. As young drivers do, coming out of a garage, right? Trying to pull out, not yet comfortable. I had a ding. I took it and got it repaired. It was like a $2,400 repair. I have a $1,000 deductible. So it cost Allstate $1,400, right? Out of the $50,000 I paid them over time, okay? And guess what happened? My next premium came in, and guess what my increase in premium was for a six-month period? $875, okay? <laughs> I looked at them, and I said, guys, we're done here, right? right. We're done here because in, in, in a year, you'll charge me more than you actually paid for my son's car repair, Right? For a guy who hasn't had a single claim in a decade and has paid you over $55,000. And so, so guess what they did? They finally, when they had a guy called Joe Tripodi who came in as a CMO and he kind of drove the agenda. And if you, know, if you look at the book, Joe Tripodi is one of the decathlete marketers that defined him. He brought in you know, a Cambridge Consulting Group and a few other partners and came up with the whole idea of a good hands guarantee, right? And one of the first things they did was accident forgiveness, and then, you know, if you pay a deductible, your deductible, you get a refund back if you don't have any claims, yada, yada. They did all of the things that solved the problem for their core customers. And guess what happened? Their attrition churn rate declined dramatically, right? But more importantly- did they keep Zane Raj as a customer? They, they regained Zane Raj as a customer. Okay. Okay. Right. But more importantly, what it also did for them is they were able to acquire new customers who actually had the same issues- with other insurers, mm, right? Yeah. And and they said, I'm willing to pay you a premium if you give me these guarantees, right? Because if I can I can now feel safe about uh, you know getting a claim handled, because it's gonna happen, right? And I'm not gonna get penalized after having been a good customer of yours. And so guess what happened? It worked. The problem is six and a half, seven years later, everybody in the category offers the exact same thing. And nobody's innovated beyond that. Yeah. And so it's fascinating because now what's happened is everybody's now still playing the acquisition game, right? Let me get more people in. And, and it's fascinating how short-term the memory is in the world of marketing where what works, they stop doing it once it works. Yeah. And you realize, anyway, you talk to any doctor, right? You know, what does a doctor tell you? If you find a medication that works for you on a chronic issue, what do you do? You comply with it and you keep taking it consistently. And if you do it, it will absolutely keep you healthy and well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, 
you mentioned Jeff Bezos earlier. There's one story I heard. Uh, I read in an article, and I don't know if it's true or not. But if there's any listeners who work at Amazon, please please let me know. I heard that uh, when he goes to a meeting at his company, you know, in a con- one of the conference rooms, that they, he wants an em- one empty chair in the room, and the reason why is because. At some point during the meetings, he ends up having to point to it because that chair represents the customer. And everybody in the meeting is there, you know, focused on their one area of, you know, running the business. And he'll point at the, at the empty chair and say, yeah, but guys, you're forgetting she doesn't care about that or she that's unacceptable to her. <laughs> and what I'd heard was that as a result, people getting ready for meetings with the boss man would say, wait a minute, you know what he's going to do during this meeting? He's going to point at that chair. And then everyone says, oh, that's right. How is this going to go over with the customer? <laughs> and it just seemed like a, an interesting way to try to keep people mindful of the customers who give them the, the permission to do what they do, like you, you talked about. Let's move on. I want to ask you one other question. Why are so many marketers and companies failing to pay attention and change the way they approach their marketing? Well, um, you know, I think I think there are two aspects uh, uh, that I'd like to use to answer that question. Um, the first one is, you know, more so today than I've ever seen in my past 25 years of doing this is I've actually started seeing marketeers being more open-minded to new ways, new approaches than I have at any moment in the past. So, you know, in reality, I think there is a movement starting to happen for change. It's still very slow and it's still a few people. Um, um, but, you know, at least it's a moving starting to happen. So mm-hmm. so call me crazy, but at least starting to see movement after seeing no movement for over a decade of trying to evangelize this kind of a point of view makes me feel like there is some hope in the future, yes. right? <laughs> so, so that's, yeah. yeah, so that's one. But let's get back to why are marketeers you know, slow at the uptake, right? Why are they not moving to the world where it is? Well, I think I think there are three fundamental reasons for that, right? Reason number one uh, is a majority of the senior people that are leading marketing, right, in companies have either grown up, you know, influenced by the attention economy rules and then having to change in those rules to fit within the information economy, right, and are now trying to understand how to take those learnings and get into the inside economy, right? As we all know, you know, change is hard for most people. But it's if terrifying. It's terrifying. But if you have been doing something for the last 20 to 25 years and you've had those neurons in your brain that have been carved, right? With yeah. all of the learnings you've had and your experiences built around things that have worked in a certain way because you've done it in a certain way. It is scary. It is scary. It's terrifying. It is, but it's also very, very, um, you know, inhibiting to try and figure out a different way of doing something. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the second issue. The third issue is there aren't enough people available to them that have the experience, the knowledge, the understanding, and the capability to help them think through it and then execute it. And here's the problem. If you look at the executive team in any marketing organization today, it is more diverse than it has ever been in our our lifetime. 
right? Douglas, when you and I were in the business, you went to the marketing team, what did you have? You had the CMO, you had a VP of brand advertising, you had a VP of media, right? Yeah. And maybe if it was a financial services client, maybe you had a VP of direct marketing or direct mm-hmm. mail in those days. Mm-hmm. You were done, right? I mean, you didn't have anybody. Else. Or maybe you had a kind of a director of research, right? And yeah, then- but there was a big blunt instrument that, that exactly. I called advertising. Right. Now <laughs> what's months. happening? Now what's happening is you have people of you know who are in content marketing, social media, digital marketing, right? You have traditional media, you have brand advertising, you have, you know, you have analytics, you've got so much stuff going on. But more importantly, each a majority of the leaders on the specific issues have grown up in a tactical world and are very good at what they do but may not be have the tools or the training or the capability or the background at a strategic level to put it all together, mm-hmm. okay? So with that as being one of the fund, so the, having a diverse team, a diverse capabilities is not a positive necessarily in the grand scheme of things if you don't have somebody that can actually choreograph. So if you have a, you have a huge orchestra, but you as a conductor don't have the skills or the capable or the training. And then you only have different musicians and, and, and nobody's written the music, right? So there hasn't been a Bach or somebody that has created the music that you can now just orchestrate and play. And you've got to, got to start making this stuff up. It doesn't work. That's a and great so, analogy. It's almost like it, marketing has become this Tower of Babel. It, and it is. It's a brilliant way to talk. It's a Tower of Babel, but there's been no scores written. There's no music. There's no language. And there is no script. And, and that's why marketeers and that's why companies are struggling that's why i wrote the book i thought by at least putting the point of view out there that there is a script and there is a script right because it doesn't matter what music you write today right it and what music you know beethoven and bach wrote you know 100 years ago or the music that was played in my home country in india a thousand years ago the principles based on math and the principles based on the, the nature of the instruments have been the same, mm-hmm. okay? And, and if you go back to the fundamentals of music, and as you know, you know, I talked, I mean, I got back into my music and, to my, and my passion for my guitars and, you know, writing uh, music and songs. You know, when I got back to that, I actually went back to the core of how music started and said, what is the fundamental? And when you look at the fundamental, it's very simple. And that's why... You know, when I talk to clients, and that's why when I, you know, what I write in the book is it's not hard. If you put uh, put it into a simple principle, right? The simple principle is, can you just go figure out who your customer is? Who's your most devoted customer? Why are they so devoted to you? What do they look like? What does it seem like? What does it sound like? Go spend a week in their, in, in their shoes mm-hmm. or in their lives. I'll, I'll give you a classic example. Remember the 17 CMOs I talked about? Mm-hmm. The only reason why the 17th one knew her customers well is she'd actually spent weeks with her customers in their homes, shopping with them, living their lives with them. I do that with, with some of my key clients, right? And they are fascinating experiences. I've actually gone to swim meets and then, you know, ballet classes and, you know, shopped around at different kinds of stores, right? Driven around in a, in a, in a minivan with, you know, three screaming kids with their parents because I have, you know, lived with that family for call it three days or a week or something, right? And it's been fascinating when you kind of do that because you realize that what we spend as marketeers our entire lives, 20 hour days, seven days a week, 
obsessing, dreaming, thinking, strategizing, tactically figuring out, executing. You know what? It only has a minuscule role in our customer's life. And so <laughs> as all, much as we hate to admit that. <laughs> as much as we and so all we have to figure out in that little minuscule role, how can I become so relevant? And the only way you become relevant is how can I solve my customer's problem? How can I solve Lubaina's problems if for that minuscule of time that she has to deal with it so that she doesn't even have to worry? She doesn't have to worry for that minuscule and yes. she can just breathe. Yeah. And if she can get there, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, that is the only reason for marketing to exist, for the function, for the role, and for the people. And anybody who can do that brilliantly, and that's why I love Jeff Bezos' story that you talked about. You know, I actually take a guy called Igor. He's, you know, it's 800 pound gorilla. I got it from, you know, a store in New York, black, big Igor. And I actually take Igor actually to some meetings because I use Igor, not as I would define my wife, but I use Igor to say, guys, this is your paradigm. Your paradigm is you think about the problem in a different way. Just think about it from a customer's viewpoint. And once you do that, you'll realize we're complicating things too much. We're worrying about too many things. You should only be looking at what is it that makes her breathe a sigh of relief that this one brand, our brand, was able to solve her problem in a way that she didn't have to do something complex, time-consuming, weird, and painful. Yes, very well said. Zane, There's in our limited time, there's one other concept from your book that I really want the listener to hear about and understand, and I thought it was just brilliant. And that is being a marketing decathlete. You talk about how marketers now cannot be just a sprinter or a javelin thrower. They have to be a marketing decathlete. Can you explain a bit more about that concept? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the attention economy uh, was all about brand marketing, right? So marketeers came <clears throat> that knew how to create brilliant advertising that knew how to build, quote, the brand, at least the awareness, interest, desire in the brand. The information economy became the world for response-based marketeers that knew how to use data and then knew how to use the digital channels to drive more response, right? And to eke out, uh, you know, results from uh, specific tests and stuff like that. Well, the world, because the pace of change, because different aspects, today's marketeers need to understand and, and use and be competent. They don't have to be world beaters in each one of them, but they need to be competent in 10 skills, right? Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like the decathletes in the Olympics. You know, these are the full athletes. These are people that can absolutely compete credibly at each one of those events. Well, they're called the greatest athletes in the world. They are the greatest athletes in the world, right? And Daley Thompson is still continues to be the one hero that I look up to, even though he hasn't competed for over almost a decade and a half. But- yes, and I have to add, when you started talking about Daley Thompson, I'm of the same age, and I remember him uh, l- learning. I was living in Europe at the time of the 84 Olympics, but what a character that guy was. And so when you were uh, talking about him, you know, it, it's funny how you said, you know, he's not the the, the ideal guy you'd think of, but he was uh, he was irreverent. He was you know very smart guy. He was kind of always challenging things, and he was a gold medal decathlete. Yeah, you know, and multiple times, right? And he was I, I was so he was so good at what he did that nobody ever 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 could catch up with them. And I think I think that's what today's decathlete today's marketers need to be. Mm-hmm. They need to be capable and 
all of those 10 kind of events. And again, because we're short on time, you know, people can just look at my website or, 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 or quickly flip through the book and get all 10. But it, it, those are not hard. Those are 10 things that they need to be practicing, they need to be using, they need to be integrating, and they need to be driving it. And I've also listed in the book a number of decathletes that are doing it today in a lot of different ways. Yes. I think, you know, one of them happens to be Tom O'Toole, who's the CMO at United, also president of Mileage Plus Holdings. He is a true Is he a guitar de- player? He's not a guitar player, but, uh, you know, uh, he does understand the importance of guitars to guitar players when they're traveling yeah. United. But, you know, I think I think that's a key part. I think that in today's world, all of us need to be flexible. We need to be fluid and we need to be capable and more more than the one skill set that we used growing up. Yeah. And I think I think if we can all become more flexible, I, I bet we'll also all have a lot more fun. Well, and I think also marketers uh, might think, oh gosh, there's 50 things I got to focus on. No, just start with these 10 and you will do well. And it seemed like uh, I had not heard of this term before. Maybe you coined it, this idea of the marketing decathlete. But it's as if corporate recruiters could would start using this term. You know how sometimes um, in the world they'll say, well, I'm looking for a, uh, uh, I'm looking, like in my, you know, in the agency business, they'll say, I'm looking for a unicorn, meaning right. somebody who's very comfortable with content, maybe a fantastic writer, but also very comfortable in the analytical world. And more and more people will be like that, but it's not what has been traditionally called for in the marketing. And so you hear a lot of people saying, oh, uh, give it up. You're looking for a unicorn. But in a similar way, it seemed like this marketing decathlete is a term that recruiters are going to be using. And it seemed like something that great marketers could aspire to. And you know what? Listen, so I did coin the phrase. Uh, I, I I do have it r- registered and trademark, right? My I'm actually going to be I'll releasing a residual check your way. Thank you. I, I'm actually releasing a, a mini book, right? As an addendum to the last book, which has got about 70 pages about what do decathletes need to deliver, right? And it simplifies the whole concept, even of those 10 things into kind of, you know, like a decathlete, right? Three kind of events, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it integrates the whole idea of experience that delivers engagement so you can build equity, right? Kind of an idea mm-hmm. um, that I've been, you know, I wrote about it a while ago. You know, it it it, uh, it wasn't a full book. And that's why I brought the whole idea of decathlete in my last book. And now I'm just going to add this on. It's going to be available on Amazon for free for people who want to kind of, you know, buy it and connect it with the last book and or just read it by itself. So thank you for the plug. Oh, I, wow. When uh, is it going to be available? It's going to be, uh, we're, we're looking at, uh, at having it out right after Labor Day. So okay. in the fall, I'll, I'll make sure I send you a copy. Yeah, we'll make sure uh, to promote it. And we'll even, uh, when the time comes, we'll include a link to it at marketingbookpodcast.com on your show notes. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. So Zane, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Just very simple. Let's go back and focus on people, right? Focus on your customer who is nobody but your spouse, right? At the end of the day. For me, it's my wife. Um, Don't get caught up in this. Smart man, Zane. Yeah. Thank you. Let's focus on the basics. And you know what's interesting? Um, there's another book uh, that's been on the show that is a, that I think is an interesting companion piece to yours, which is uh, Small Data by Martin Lindstrom, Yep. which is an, a New York Times bestseller. And there's a lot of, uh, I'd say there's a lot of shared DNA with your book where he talks about this over-reliance on data now. And he uh, even talks about the importance of doing what you described earlier, get in the minivan, go to their house. 
spend time with these people, and you're going to start getting fantastic, enormously competitive insights that will help you. So, Zane, what books have inspired your work and career? Well, um, you know, it's a very interesting question because I read a lot, right? So, I've, you know, um, but um, if I were to kind of lay them out, I, mean, I think there are there are three books or maybe four. I think that I I still keep around. I still keep on looking at it. So, the you know the the first one for me has has always been the Art of War by Sun Tzu, right? Mm, yes. And if you you know, I, I can't get him on the show. No, it would be really hard because, you know, he kind of walked away a long time ago, um, you know. Uh, but, you know, I think I think to me that book has been a defining part of looking at what are the chinks in the, quote, business marketplace, right, that are not being fulfilled. And I think if you look at any of my books and if you look at my writings, they're all built around Sun Tzu's principles that he describes in The Art of War, which is, you know, uh, frontal attacks never work, right? You got to look at the world from the sides and you got to figure out what angles work. So that's mm -hmm. one. The second book, which I, again, keep around is uh, Philip Kotler, right? I mean, he's he's oh, from yeah. Chicago and I uh, Kotler on marketing, right? Published in the in the 90s is I, it's a seminal book yes. fundamentally about anything, anybody in marketing needs to go back and read it. And that's to me is the irony. When I talk about it, I ask, people and I go, how many of you have read Kotler's book on marketing? It's scary. Less than less than five percent of people in any audience raise their hands. And my comment to them is if you if you're in marketing and you haven't read that book, you should not be in marketing. It's as simple as that. Okay. My <laughs> well said. I should add that I had a friend at J. Walter Thompson who went on to get a MBA at Northwestern and one of his you know classes was with uh, Dr. Yeah. Kotler. And of course, you know, being marketing book geeks, we were like, oh wow, that's great. <laughs> 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 yeah, I call him Uncle Phil, right? So, you know, it's, it's, uh, he's, he's amazing, right? Yes. Great talent. I think my third book is a book called Taiko uh, by a guy called Aiji Yoshikawa. I'm not sure if anybody uh, on your audience has uh, heard of him or read any of his books, but he's written a couple of seminal uh, historical books about, you know, feudal Japan. But Taiko is a story of the guy who started as a peasant and went on to be the guy who unified Japan for the first time, right? And left a legacy, you know, that created a set, a framework for a legacy that lasted for, you know, multiple, multiple millennia, right? Mm. And, and, and to me, the inspiration I have from his story is about how he was always able to look at the world in a slightly different way, right? which is how he was able to turn the corner. And he was able to frame things in a way that made, you know, a very kind of a rigid society, right? That Japan had become uh, and kind of make it more flexible in a way that allowed it to kind of, you know, survive and prosper for, for a long time. And I look at it because I grew up in the world, right, as you did, in the world of advertising-led marketing, right? Mm -hmm. And and as I, I don't know if you remember, but it was a very rigid world, right? Creative people did this, account people, clients, you know. <laughs> right. and, 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 and I came from the army, and I thought that uh, that was rigid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, even today, I mean, even today, I, I, I sit in meetings, right? And I walked away from the traditional advertising world into the world of data and digital a long time ago because it was of, of the ability to be fluid and flexible. And even today, I sit in meetings and I see the some of the agency people still operate like they used to do 30 years ago. And, and you look at them and go, <laughs> do you not realize that, you know, the world of dinosaurs ended? 
And the fact that you're talking about, hey, I need a four-page brief before I can make a 30-second TV commercial doesn't exist. And when you start a meeting by presenting a 30-second TV commercial, you're still living in the past. It's yes. still happening. It scares me, right? Me too. So, Ta- so Taiko by I.G. Yoshikawa, if people haven't read it, that is, I would recommend as a book just to kind of understand what it means to live in a world of change and how, despite what level you are, you can actually influence that. And my fourth one. I love it. And we're going to include links to all these on the show notes. Okay. That, I that think the fourth, my fourth one, which inspired me to, to get into this business was Ogilvy and Advertising. Oh, my, me too. That was the book. Right. That was the book that I read it and I go, I want to be in this business because I was actually a finance and economic major. I was going to be a CPA. Right. And then I realized it's very easy to explain to people what I did. I want a job that I cannot explain to anybody. Right. And and man, Ogilvy was such an inspiration. 58-year-old Scotsman, right, had sold vacuum cleaners door to door to everything. At 58, decides to create an agency, builds one of the best marketing companies in the world. Right. And his writing, it's just what I would call a renaissance man at the time when he was there. And I'm like, I want to be in this business. I wonder if I could do even 1% of what he's been able to do, I would I would feel a life well lived. And so I still keep that book. These are four books, uh, you know, that are always, uh, you know, if you come to my home and look at my study there on my first shelf. Yeah. And I look at them and I get inspired by them. And sometimes I look at them and I go, you know, I, I feel like, boy, I've got a long ways to go to even meet up any part of the aspirations any of these folks were able to in a dip. Oh, boy, you've warmed the cockles of my heart. And I, as I explained in episode 000, which is a very short, the very first episode that explained what this podcast is about, I told the quick story about how I had gone from the being in the Army and then I uh, went to get an MBA. And while I was doing that, I was looking at lots of different fields because I wanted to find something that excited me. And I wanted to learn more about advertising world. I didn't know much about it. And a professor gave me a copy of what was then a pretty new book, Ogilvy on Advertising. And I tell you, I read it and I said, that's it. I found it. (laughs) There is no turning back. That is what I want to do. And I put together an ad for myself that showed a picture of me in front of one of my howitzers from the Army. And it said, ready, aim, hire. And it, uh, I got lots of interviews. This is before the internet was uh, around to, to use. And it, I haven't looked back. So I, I really appreciate you mentioning that one. <laughs> that has a special place in my heart. Zane, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? I think I think the uh, there are two ways that would work for anybody. One is they can go onto my website. It's Zane Raj Z A I N R A J dot com, mm-hmm. or they can just go onto Amazon and just write Zane Raj, and both of my books are going to pop up. And there's enough information in there for them to get an idea about who I am, and uh, as well as uh, you know what those books are about. Great, great. The name of the book is Marketing for Tomorrow, Not Yesterday, Surviving and Thriving in the Insight Economy. The author is Zane Raj. Zane, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Likewise, Douglas. Happy to be on, and thank you for bringing me on. And that closes the book on Episode 78 of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for links to all the things we talked about in this interview and access to free marketing guides from my agency. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Do you know what gets me excited? 
hearing from listeners like you. It really makes my day when a listener contacts me with a suggestion or a book recommendation. Or if I can point you to the right book or other marketing resource, please let me know if I can help. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Or heck, just tweet me up using hashtag marketingbook. And please join us next time as we talk with Trish Bertuzzi about her new book, The Sales Development Playbook. Build repeatable pipeline and accelerate growth with inside sales. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.